on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Chris Chun about Jonathan Edwards and Baptist theology. So we'll cover all sorts of topics like, do you really think Jonathan Edwards would have ended up a Baptist had he lived long enough? And why do you call Edwards a proto-Baptist? Was Edwards really a paedo-Baptist at heart? Why did he actually ignore the topic of paedo-Baptism in his writings? How does his belief in baptism compare to his contemporary Congregationalist ministers? Or to separate Baptists like Bacchus and others? And how did Baptists really interact with Edwards? What was what about the Charleston Association and the Sandy Creek traditions? Andrew Fuller. Why does John Gill not interact with him or mention him? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in trying to cultivate more serious thinkers, we've tried to cast a compelling vision of creating and cultivating an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And so that looks like people who know what they believe, they know why they believe it, they care about it, but they're interacting with others in a fair-minded, even-handed way. Uh, we think it's, a, it's, it's necessary for Christians to treat others with respect and honor, though that doesn't uh, remove our, our ability or the necessity to think at a high level. So we want to treat everything, everybody with respect, but we want to engage it at the highest level. And so that's a little bit about what we're trying to do with the podcast and all the sort of stuff we do. So you'll, you'll, if you listen regularly, you're going to find people across the spectrum on all sorts of different topics, and that's good for us. Now, today, I'm looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Chris Chun. We're going to be talking about Jonathan Edwards and his relationship to Baptists. Uh, so this will be a lot of fun. Um, I, he's written several very interesting papers on, on Edwards and whether he might be a proto-Baptist. So this... I'm going to have a lot of fun with this one. So, Dr. Chun, before we get started, just give me a little bit of background about where you're at, what you do, and then what was it that really initially piqued your interest in Edwards? Well, thanks for having me, uh, Dr. Stefanak. Uh, um, Basically, um, my name is uh, Chris Chun. I teach at Gateway Seminary. Um, I'm professor of church history there. Uh, Also the director of Jonathan Edwards Center West. Um, one of the uh, uh, specialization we do is uh, Edwards theology and tradition and in Baptist life and thought. That's sort of our specialization. So um, uh, this uh, topic is something that I've been thinking about it for quite some time. I do believe that Jonathan Edwards as a proto-Baptist is a provocative remark that's, I think, destined to raise some skeptical eyebrows among my uh, pedal baptist friends. Uh, so I just want to at least clarify where I'm coming from, just in case uh, you're wondering. I have a Korean-American background. Uh, if you are a Korean, have a Korean ethnic background living in the United States, chances are you are a Presbyterian. That's just how it works. Uh, if you're a Protestant Christian in somewhere living in the American South, from Bible Belt or a place like that, there are a good chance you're a Baptist. So I just want your podcasters, uh, podcast listeners to know that um, 
you know, infant baptism, when I'm talking about infant baptism, I'm not attacking their views here. Uh, I want to clarify that as uh, one of those theological issues that we can respectively disagree, agree to disagree. Uh, and uh, as a former Presbyterian raised in a Korean church, I still have many uh, uh, Presbyterian friends. So when I murmur, <laughs> Pedro Baptist, I have many friends. I still get invited speak at their churches and stuff like that. So um, uh, my pedo-baptist friends and I are very close enough. Sometimes we love taking pot shot at each other and you know, in the love of uh, charity, of course. So if they are uh, pedo-baptists, uh, they may not agree with what I'm about to say, uh, but I do hope that your uh, listener will listen to me at least in the spirit of charity. Yeah, I like it. So before we jump into thinking about Edwards and his relationship to Baptists, I know most people probably have a good sketch of like just generally who Jonathan Edwards is. Maybe in, instead of giving me the, the, the general bio, you give me one of your favorite things about Edwards as just an individual in history. Well, um, yeah, I have, I have many different ideas. I mean, this, this could go to so many different places. I mean, just kind of... Um, uh, kind of give you a couple of quotes that um, um, others have said about Edwards. Uh, George Marston wrote a kind of gold standard biography of Edwards 20 years ago, described Edwards as the most acute early American philosopher and most brilliant of all American theologians. Uh, Harvard historian Perry Miller, he actually was the uh, first general, general editor of Yale Critical Edition, Describe Edwards as one of the greatest philosopher, theologian yet to grace the American scene. And uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, uh, who is famous in the 20th century for theological ethicists, uh, famous for writing his book, Christ and Culture, describe Edwards as America's Augustine. All those things are very a great description of Edwards. But one thing that I really appreciate, <laughs> a definition, or I've heard of Edwards' description of Edwards that I appreciate is from J.I. Packer. Uh, it's a very succinct summary and kind of encapsulates a lot of Edwards uh, as a person. He writes, quote, Jonathan Edwards, sane, scholar, preacher, pastor, metaphysician, theologian, Calvinist, and revival leader, lived from 1703 to 1758. I thought that just beautifully encapsulates just all of Edwards' uh, life and theology. Awesome. So, you know, I took originally a Jonathan Edwards course myself with Dr. Tom Nettles when I was at Southern, and I still remember him saying something along the lines of, he thought that if Edwards had lived long enough, he would become a Baptist and it stuck with me. And then I'm reading your stuff you're and you're arguing and you're calling Edwards a proto-Baptist. So I guess there's a lot of questions in here that I could ask mm -hmm. about why you call him a proto-Baptist, um, but maybe, mm -hmm. I mean, just give me that initial rationale for why you're calling him that. Yeah. Um, proto-Baptist, meaning that he resemble a group of folks that at least in, in the American life, uh, separate Baptists who later became uh, Baptists, full-blown Baptists. But I have to be honest here. Um, I'm not trying to make Edwards into my own image here. I, that's always a danger in doing that. 
from the very outset, I have to concede that Edwards was a papal Baptist, period. Okay. Um, I think to to argue him anything otherwise would be inaccurate historical portrayal of this man. That said, having fully acknowledged that Edwards may have had uh, a Baptist on a one level, I would also say that his belief on infant baptism ought to be nuanced. Uh, maybe his affirmation of paedobaptism at least should have a big asterisk next to it. One thing you highlight in one of your essays that I found very interesting is he seems to ignore, to some degree, the topic of paedobaptism in his writings. I-, I would love to hear why you think that is. Yes, that's a very great question. Um, before answering that directly, let me step back just just a little bit and give you a broader context, because in order for really understand this this particular question about ignoring his topic, I think we need to understand concept of halfway covenant. Uh, Edward's grandfather, Solomon Stutter, uh, I believe in halfway covenant, which was adopted in 1662 by congregational churches in New England as a means of partial church membership. This was largely driven by the fact that increasing of the first generation of Puritan settler in the New World began to fade away. Their children and grandchildren often did not have the type of religious fervency and the piety as their uh, parents and their grandparents. So their offspring and later uh, immigrants did not experience the type of uh, conversion as did in previous generation. So in order to accommodate this budding generation, halfway covenant was introduced. And this scheme really allowed parents to bring their children for baptism, um, even though parents did not themselves make a credible profession of faith. In fact, the people even it was even encouraged to bring their children to Lord's table as a sacrament and view as uh, Lord's table uh, uh, as a converting ordinance, communion as a converting ordinance, rather than time of fellowship among uh, believers. However, as it turned out, the halfway covenant led to a lot of dissatisfaction among many congregations. Uh, ultimately, became a catalyst for, catalyst for many congregational clergies, and that's the background. So, coming back to your question, why did he ignored the topic of papal baptism in his writing. Well, I'd like to quote here a Presbyterian uh, historical theologian. I'd like to do, I'd like to quote hist, uh, you know Presbyterian and Episcopalian just to let you know that uh, you know if you start quoting a Baptist, then you might say, well, you know, he's a Baptist. What do you expect from a Baptist? Of course. They, so, so if I if I'm quoting a Presbyterian and Episcopalian who are papal Baptist scholars. Then you know that at least they're they're not trying to be biased here. So, according to John Gerstner, who was a PCA hist- historian, uh, historical theologian, um, he, he says that uh, Jonathan Edwards is clearly reformed in his view of infant baptism, though he says surprisingly little about it. So uh, I generally argument from silence does not make a compelling case unless the fact that can be seen as so natural that its omission is highly unlikely. 
So in Edward's case, uh, he wrote much of the Lord's Supper, uh, even at much uh, great personal cost. The readers of Edward's are left to wonder why did he virtually ignore the issue of infant baptism? So I'd like to raise some, you know, questions here. I, I give some account as to why. Why well, I thought that this was an intentional avoidance. First, uh, for Edwards, this topic was not very interesting subject of exploration. Uh, again, 19th century Paedo-Baptist Episcopalian, Episcopalian historian, okay, person who affirmed uh, uh, infant baptism. He, uh, Alexander Allen, correctly observed that although Edwards admit that this might be a subject of controversy. He wanted other theologians to write this about dissertation. See, because he realized this is a controversial topic. Alexander, you know, he, he, Alexander Allen observed this about Edwards. Edwards says that it's a controversial topic, and I want other theologians to write on this dissertation. But strangely, not Edwards himself. So, and so, you know, I think that was really, really great observation by Alexander Allen. He's writing in the 19th century. Uh, now we have a word search function in Jonathan Edwards, you know, work of Jonathan Edwards online. These things are very easy to confirm. What Gerstner said and what Allen said, their suspicions are generally accurate. Okay. Now, if you do a word search function in, in, in the uh, online Edwards, Edward referred to uh, infant baptism numerous times, but in most cases, just passing remark. In fact, in writing about infant baptism, he, explic he explicitly commented that, quote, Edward says, how small and how lighter matter this topic was in comparison to other doctrinal error in his generation, such as the open denial of divinity of our Savior, Edward says. So there, are, compared to other stuff, this is like small potato. Like, let's not really talk about this, you know. So for Edwards, infant baptism was really a non-issue. Hence, he never took time or, or felt a need to intellectually wrestle with it. So unlike uh, his subject of communion, Edward was not compelled to self-critically challenge his own Pedal Baptist tradition, which lead to historians like me to wonder. It's kind of counterfactual questions, like counterfactual history. I love this kind of speculation, just to just to see where it goes. Like questions like, what if JFK has survived his assassination? Where would America be today? Right? That kind of question. I, you know, it's 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 a fun fun you know, intellectual exercise. So, what if Edwards were to pursue? Uh, issue of infant baptism with the same degree of diligence and dedication on the su like subject of Lord's Supper. My question, if he had done that, would he remain Pedro-Baptist? If so, the further questions opens up in my second historical reconstruction. Namely, given the attitude towards a majority of congregations during this time, I think case could be drawn that Perhaps Edwards did not explore the subject because he did not want it to be Baptist. He didn't respect Baptists. He didn't want it to be one of them. 
due to the social stigmatism associated with rather obscure group of people in Rhode Island sect in North colonial America, which being labeled as a pejorative Baptist might not have been a best outfit for his aristocratic family name in Northampton Parish. George Marston, it says, uh, Edward's temperament. Let's look at Edward's temperament. George Marston says, quote, Edward was willing to depart from his father in some things, but it had never been easy. So given this kind of like psychological deterrence, how much would he be unwilling to entertain about issue of Pedro Baptist, especially when he already thought that the topic was utterly unimportant compared to other prominent doctrinal issues? So um, that's another uh, reason and that uh, why he might have been rather uninterested. Um, let's look at um, this issue of uh, his uh, Lord's, um, Lord's Supper. I think this is a very interesting because why, uh, as a result of his unwavering issue on the Lord's Supper, and he wanted, uh, he Edwards firmly believed that the Lord's Supper was for the Lord's children. He basically argued for Degenerate church membership. And after arguing that point, in 1749, this was an excruciatingly difficult phase in Edward's life. Because on one hand, he did not wish to take a stance on the Lord's Supper. Yet on another hand, his theological conviction grew and qualification grew. And it became more and more difficult for him to turn a blind eye on this matter of Lord's Supper, that only the converted should uh, take the Lord's Supper. Um, in fact, uh, Edwards had a close friend. One of his uh, closest friends actually was not was in Scotland. His name is John Erskine. And he confides with John Erskine about this uneasy task of just being able to stand up for uh, against the halfway covenant and what he see as a regenerate church membership that taking Lord's Supper for those who confess profession of faith. And in this issue, he writes to John Erskine, quote, a very difficulty has risen between me and my people relating to the qualification for, for communion at the Lord's table. My honored grandfather, Solomon Stutter, my predecessor strenuously maintained Lord's Supper to be a converting ordinance. I firmly conform to his practice, and I have had difficulty in respecting to it, which have been long increasing, till I dare no longer to proceed in my former way. So given Edward's high esteem for his grandfather and high regard for traditional status quo, it's not surprising it took Edward upwards of 26 years to take a decisive stand against this minority, rather unpopular view. But the question that I was asking, how, why did it take so long to oppose his grandfather? And again, I, historians love these kind of uh, primary sources. Like he, he writes his intentions flatly known in his preface to Humble Inquiry, which talk, this is a treatise on Edward's Humble Inquiry. 
uh, about the Lord Supper controversy. And this is what he writes, flat out writes, Tis far from pleasing circumstance of this publication. And tis against my honor, grandfather, strenuously, strenuously maintained, both from the pulpit and the press. I can truly say, on account of this and some other consideration, tis what I engage with the greatest reluctance that ever I had undertook any public service in my life. So, as you can see, the decision. To stand, take a stand against halfway covenant was not something that Edwards tackled in a hasty fashion. Mm-hmm. Edwards had to use all his political and professional capital to maintain his view. In other words, Edwards says it would cost my re- own reputation, my future usefulness, and my very substance. And you know what? He was right in that prediction. Because Edward's stance eventually led to dismissal from his posh Northampton congregation with my vote of 230 to 23 on June 22nd, 1750. So in light of such uphill battle over communion controversy, it is as almost inconceivable for Edwards to think engaging of another battle on a different front. That is, even if Edward was wary of infant baptism, the communion controversy was indeed sapping all his energies. And if infant baptism were added to this mix, Edwards too would have been written off as another extreme radical in Rhode Island. Isn't that strange? Isn't that so strange that with all his Edwards theological curiosity and literary genius, he did not engage in the issue of infant baptism? It's a, yes, it's historical speculation, but I think it is very interesting to think about it. Why else would he have avoided? I like it. So I think, like you've mentioned, I think it's incredibly fun to do the counterfactual stuff. Uh, I, I want to know how, I mean, if he's not writing on baptism a lot, I mean, is there in a sense in which his his beliefs are comparable to the Congregationalist ministers that are around him? and? How different really is it from the separate Baptists, maybe somebody like Isaac Backus? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think it's important to put Edwards in his, in his context. If I were to just argue this from sort of internal, from Edwards' theology or making, making counterfactual speculation, then I might, it might be like, okay, Chris, well, you're a Baptist. Of course you would think that. But this was a trend. This was a this was a, a trend uh, that was happening over and over again. About the same time, Edward was wrangling over issue of the uh, Lord's Table, table um, uh, approximately 115 miles south from Northampton Parish. Another figure like Isaac Backus was wrestling with the same issues. Isaac Backus, Puritan uh, Baptist pastor, championed religious liberty in colonial America, as many, many people would know him, was born as a congregation just like Edward's. As many uh, New Light congregations before him initially came out to question the practice of halfway covenants, but unlike Edwards, Baptists actually went a step further and became a separate Baptist. Comparable to Edwards' struggle, he too was not easy. It was not an easy decision for Baptists, an era in which being a Baptist was not a 
popular viewpoint. So Bacchus was persuaded towards Baptist, Baptist practice for a while, you know, attempting to convert two of his parishioners. And then after that, his parishioner actually convinced him that actually uh, uh, we should adapt creedal baptism, believer's baptism. And he realized that he was part of the Great Awakening, and this seems to really um, kind of accentuate uh, you know, conversion experience in, among, among separate Baptists. But a new like uh, new, new like congregations in Northwest. But after a lengthy discussion in trying to re- re- return to Pedro Baptist view, uh, Bacchus temporarily was convinced that these two parishioners were actually right, and he preached sermon advocating for only believers should be baptized. But Almost immediately after this episode, <laughs> Bacchus publicly confessed his regrets about the sermon and returned to his former pedo baptist view. I mean, pressure for social conformity and status quo would have been an enormous deterrence for any congregationalist during this period. So two years later in 1751, Bacchus again were forced to consider with more pressure, adopting believers' baptism. And after agonizing prayer, intense study of scripture, he, Bacchus finally came to convince that there's no warrant to baptize infant. So as a congregationalist, Baptist was making a journey from being a separate to finally becoming a separate Baptist. And, but he was not alone in that pilgrimage. This was a major trend. It's not an isolated case. Um, many other congregational churches were subsequently developed into separate Baptist church during the Great Awakening. Uh, many Baptist, some Baptist historians call this, this new like congregational churches as a halfway road to becoming a Baptist. Another Baptist historian described this uh, trend as a, these new like uh, congregationalist uh, churches as a nursery of Baptists, right? So given how sympathetic Edwards was to these new lights, particularly uh, against criticism against Charles Chauncey, it's not surprising to see the level of a congenial attitude towards these separate. For instance, in October, I mean, August 4th, 1750, about a month after his dismissal from Northampton Parish, now remember, Edward was fired from his congregation because of his stand against a halfway covenant. I almost feel like now that he had been dismissed from his congregation, he could be a little more honest about his views. So in, in uh, Joseph Bellamy, uh, and one of Edward's prized disciples, uh, wrote uh, 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 his dissertation on, called uh, True Religion Delineated. Edwards wrote a preface to it. And in the preface, Edwards praised Joseph Bellamy for, quote, having also much acquaintance and frequent long conversation with people called separate or separate Baptists. So here, like, Edwards is in print, publicly saying that, you know, Bellamy, I praise you for having these conversations with uh, this new light uh, congregations and also separate Baptists. So, um, uh you could sort of see this kind of uh, thing that happening over and over again, like new like Cal- new new like uh, uh, congregationalists uh, were being um, uh, separate Baptists, 
ironically, under the preaching of George Whitfield, who is an Anglican Methodist preacher. <laughs> so uh, I don't think Whitfield was very happy that these people that he preached to about revival and being converted are now becoming uh, separate Baptists by the drawer so much that Whitfield lamented, saying, Behold, all my chickens have become ducks. Right? It's like, it's like I, I don't want these people to become Baptists, but they were. And I think that they were really picking up on this uh, Great Awakening ethos and regenerate church membership, this notion that people need to be converted and the congregation that uh, that, that form should be made up of believers, believers' church. So how, how do other Baptists, his contemporaries and after him, interact with Edwards? I mean... I don't know a lot about what everybody's thinking. I know I re- recently reread Andrew Fuller's Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, and and in that he's pretty specific, you know, drawing on Edwards, saying you know Edwards is really helpful, and, and especially his freedom of the will. So I, I'd love to know who are the the main Baptists who are interacting with him. Um, does he have any sort of relationship with them, or is it all sort of like Baptists are just drawing on his stuff and using it in different ways? You mean Andrew Fuller in particular? Uh, Fuller or anybody. I, I, I'm just interested in Baptists in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, when we talking about Andrew Fuller, um, you're talking about uh, 18th century particular Baptist life in England. So we're talking about the Great Awakening in uh, New England. Now let's kind of go back to old England and see what's going on in that scene. Uh, 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 Enlightenment has eroded the historical orthodoxy among general uh Baptists. Um, many of them became uh, Socinian and Unitarian. Uh, particular Baptists were not doing anything better. Uh, many of particular Baptists were suffering from uh, Sandemanianism, Antinomianism, and also Hyper-Calvinism um, that were really uh, sending particular Baptists into disarray. It was in this such predicament, Edwardian Calvinism stalled the decline and and stir the revival among the particular Baptists, and no person is actually have a greater influence on in that situation than Andrew Fuller. Of course, it's not done by single handedly by Andrew Fuller. You have a several a couple of British Baptist network in this era, such as Bristol Baptist Academy, uh, as well as the Northamptonshire Association. Uh, on you know on under uh, Bruce Baptist Economy you have Bernard Faskett, Hugh and Caleb Evans as well as John Ryland Jr. Uh, it was a very uh, are a group of folks that who really read Edwards and uh, became a bedrock for vibrant orthodoxy. And when the most of the particular Baptists were going down and became a uh, kind of like a cold frozen uh, Calvinist hyper Calvinist. Um, and then you have people like uh, Faskett and and John uh, in, introduced John uh, John Evers to his people like John Sutcliffe and so on. So they were in the group of network. But um, there's I think a lot of uh, story with Andrew Fuller is that it actually comes from his own personal uh, testimony. Uh, he was raised in a particular Baptist denomination. He was told that he's not able to come to Christ unless he had an inner warrant to come to Christ. And he thought that he had this, he was an inner warrant. Or it's a sign that um, scripture passage immediately comes to your mind. And that's a sign that 
you were one of the elect and that's when you could actually go. Andrew Fuller thought that he had that experience. And then he later thought that um, he was tricking himself uh, to thinking that he was one of them. And and he finally came to come to came to Christ and like as if God did not call him, but he just went to God, just like he compared himself to Esther. Like you know, uh, King did not call Esther, but he you know Esther still went before the king. Andrew Fuller felt the similar way, even though he was not called, he went to the king and he was finally converted. Looking back to his conversion, like wow, that was not un- that was not necessary. So uh, he needed some. He he needed uh, someone uh, to really help him to bridge this um, uh, particular Baptist theology with sort of evangelistic out, outlook in life because he was the first uh, secretary of the uh, Baptist Missionary Society, really the rope holder behind um, uh, William Carey and modern missionary movement. Andrew Fuller was a theological architect of modern missionary movement. And as at the end of his life, Fuller nostalgically looked back at some of the initial encounter with those who became later colleagues and friends. And people were criticizing him. Like in 1766, Fuller writes, I came to be acquainted to know with Mr. Sutcliffe, uh, who had lately to come to only. Soon after, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Ryland Jr., uh, then of Northampton. Then I find a familiar and faithful brethren, who partly by reflection and partly by reading the writing of Edwards, Bellamy, Brainer, etc., had begun without the system of false Calvinism, meaning the hyper Calvinism of the particular Baptist during that time. So Fuller came along with this kinder-spirited uh, connection with faithful uh, brethren. And and in, in uh, 1814, a few weeks before death of Sutcliffe and uh, Fuller, uh, Fuller, uh, he, uh, Sutcliffe, uh, Fuller writes that by this time, his, his, his longtime friend, uh, John Ryland Jr., uh, people were uh, criticizing them. We have heard that some who have been giving out of late that if, Sutcliffe and others, that is Northamptonshire Association, had preached more of Christ and less of Jonathan Edwards. They would have been more useful. So these critics are like criticizing that you preach Edwards a little too much for our taste. You should preach Christ instead. So they're criticizing uh, uh, Fuller and Sutcliffe and other people in Northamptonshire Association as well as Bristol Academy. So this rather mocking remark without denying the allegation of preaching Jonathan Edwards, Fuller replied in a rather, I think, kind of witty comment. He said, if those who talked thus preach Christ as half as much as Jonathan Edwards did and were half as useful as he was, then their usefulness will be double what it is. So uh, you could see that Edwards uh, Fuller uh, and Northamptonshire Association as a British Academy drank deeply from Edwards' theology. His, the- his uh, gospel worthy of excitation was heavily uh, dependent on Edwards' freedom of the will, allowed them to release from the evangelical restraints of hyper-Calvinism and being able, able to give a theological underpinning for approaching God for salvation without 
the inner warrant. So I, I would love to know if you have any conjectures or ideas for why John Gill doesn't seem to mention or interact much with Edwards. I mean, when I think of large Baptist figures who are contemporaries of Edwards, I can't think of anybody probably bigger or more important than Gill. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't see him mentioning Edwards or really interacting mm-hmm. with him. Is that, why do you think that might be the case? Yeah, I think um, uh, Gill and um, Edwards had a different audience in mind. Um, uh, Edwards was writing um, in the context of enlightenment, um, and he wanted to make traditional Calvinism compatible with enlightenment thinker. This is why in the freedom of the will, in the first two sections, he doesn't even quote a single passage of scripture. It's just of philosophy and metaphysics engaging, uh, uh, John Locke, um, other enlightenment philosophers, uh, and to let them know that hey, don't write me off, uh, don't write traditional Calvinism. Um, you know, we, I, we, we could do this because the best of uh, idea uh, is compatible to any philosophy. So he was, uh, that was his project. Um, that was not John Gill's audience. Um, Gill probably thought that um, uh, Edward had a little two bells and whistles for his taste. Um uh, and uh, he, uh, you know, Gill was not trying to make, uh, you know, particular Baptist compatible with Enlightenment thinking. And there were a lot of ideas that Edwards was a theological genius and creativity. And I don't think uh, Gill had particular taste for uh, things like that. Um, Jonathan Edwards does interact with Gill, not very in-depthly, but he does interact but um, Gill did, did not uh, interact with Edwards in a, in a way that he did. Uh, Abraham Booth, I think, will be similar, something similar, uh, cl- closer to Gill in his, at least some of his theology and some of the debate between Abraham Booth and Fuller uh, maybe perhaps shed some light on why Gill might not have interacted. Gill... Um, I mean, Abraham Booth did not like uh, New Divinity School, and 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 Booth thought that um, Fuller was a little too close, or flirting with New Divinity thinking in a way that Gill did not approve. Fuller thought that he was uh, uh, Abraham Booth was uh, against everything that comes from America, <laughs> you know, and he should, he should, he should, he should not be so prejudiced, you know, just because he's working with Edwardsian. Um, and although Gil does not come criticizing uh, Edwards, um, maybe he did, did not think that it was necessary for him to engage uh, the broader culture, broader enlightenment. He did not feel the need to, um, uh, explain to the uh, Enlightenment philosopher why Christianity is something that they should believe and be convinced of. Yeah, that, that the Abraham Booth connection is very interesting. I, I'd like to think through that some more. Uh, I would love to hear, thinking American context again, um, what about, say, the Charleston Association or the Sandy Creek tradition? Like, what? 
how are they interacting with Edwards? How does the, how does Edwards impact them over the, over time? Another great question. Uh, I think, um, in American Baptist history, uh, there are really two segment, uh, one that was, uh, imported from England and the other sort of made in, you know, made in America, right? So you got the, uh, separate Baptists who are made in America and then those particular Baptists who came from England. And many of the particular Baptists, when they arrive, uh, they have pretty much adopted second London Baptist Confession, drafted their own Philadelphia Confession of Faith in 1742. Out of this tradition rose famous Charleston Association in 1751. And Charleston tradition really adopted two previous previous uh, particular Baptist Confession of Faith, which is Second London Baptist Confession and Philadelphia Confession. Um, so this tradition, uh, some uh, Baptist historian dubbed these Charleston members as semi-Presbyterians. So uh, come from uh, Charleston, South Carolina with 18th century and Baptist life activities and and they are formal and you know, quasi-confessional and, and something like that and kind of like Presbyterianism. So uh, Charleston tradition had long heritage of holding Edwards' uh, reformed thinking, a notable figure like Richard Furman, a first uh, Baptist pastor in Charleston, first president of Triennial Convention in Charleston tradition, has been influenced by um, Edwards. People like Basil Manley Sr., as well as William B. Johnson, a country, and country's first, first systematic Baptist theologian, John L. Dagg may be classified in, in a, tradition, a Charleston tradition and influenced by um, uh, Edward's theology. And you mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Tom Nettles, who's a longtime Southern Baptist historian, says this about SVT heritage. He says, present-day Baptists cannot understood apart from being aware of the massive influence Edward's exerted. It might safely be contended that Southern Baptist confession was born theologically out of the energies of writings of Jonathan Edwards. So, um, and in, in uh, recently, um, uh, Abby uh, Taylor Todd had wrote an excellent book called Southern Edwardsian. It really took uh, Tom Nettles' thesis and brought it um, and uh, elaborated and demonstrating a very compelling case in some of the ideas that uh, Tom Nettles has uh, put forth. So um, there's a lot of great research has been done by um, uh, Abby uh, Todd about about this. And another uh, example of this is uh, in, 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 in the Baptist life, and especially uh, SBC in particular, you have the Sandy Creek tradition, which was unlike the Charleston tradition, which is more formal, uh, confessional. This was more of a revivalistic tradition and and, and uh, Sandy Creek, North Carolina built a church there in 1755 and this became separate Baptist church. It grew in the south and church grew very quickly from 16 members to six, uh, 606 members and very uh, substantial growth, even more substantial than a regular Baptist counterpart. And you see people like Shubo Stern who was a very influential uh, Sandy Creek a preacher that was a giant and pulpit and and, and 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 so on but i think one of the aspects so you have the charleston tradition really you know hanging on to the edwardian calvinism 
And then you have the Stanley Crick tradition that who, under the influence of Edwards' more revivalistic theology, filtered through the Great Awakening, really um, kind of holding on to Edwards' revivalistic thought. Um, and Rod Caldwell, uh, Robert Caldwell, he wrote a, recently wrote a book by Theology of American Revivalists, and he points out that uh, Sandy, even Sandy Crick tr- uh, tradition, who tr- traditionally uh, uh, not known as uh, Calvinistic theology, if you look at their covenant, Seventeenth Century Creek Covenant in seventeen fifty seven, had like kind of very explicitly Calvinistic articulation of it could be only be construed as a kind of reformed theology. Uh, and looking at the primary source, this is what the Sandy Creek Covenant says: the holding on to quote particular election of grace by predestination of God in Christ, free justification through the imputed righteousness of Christ, progress, progressive sanctification through God's grace and truth, and the final perseverance or continuance of the saints and greats. So even though there was a, kind of like Armenian protest, uh, kind of on, undercurrent, uh, Baptists generally during this time gravitate towards uh, Calvinism of uh, Westminster or Philadelphia Confession or Edwards' version of it, which has a kind of more experiential Calvinism or revivalistic Calvinism. And you see this case that both in separate Baptists, whether that was a, um, a Charleston tradition or Sandy Creek tradition, there was uh, uh, some influence of Edwards in both of those traditions and Baptist life. Awesome. So you've written quite a bit on Edwards and related topics. I know, I think one of the first books that I read of yours was The Legacy of Edwards and the Theology of Andrew Fuller, which I think that's been some years since that was published. Tell me, what what's the latest book that you've worked on or the one that you're most excited about that you're currently working on? Yes. And this is well, this book, this project took a really, really long time, actually. And I'm, I'm thankfully, I've submitted the manuscript to the publisher. And so I'm actually uh, good to have this on, on from my docket now. And it's going to currently going to a peer review. I'm sure the, the editors probably make some suggestion. I have to make some correction. But um, I recently uh, wrote an uh, edited a uh, the critical edition of complete work of Andrew Fuller, published by Walter DeGreuter with the ed- critical ed- editor's intro production. And that was uh, Fuller's debate with uh, uh, universalism, uh, uh, as well as Fuller's debate with Abraham Booth on the issue of substitution, imputation, and um, uh, and, and so on. So. Um, and, and, and the atonement. So, um, so those two uh, things are being released as a, a Fuller's uh, apologetic work and just recently finished the critical introduction for that series. Awesome. Well, I can imagine that we'll need to have another conversation about the, the relationship between Booth and Fuller and whether <laughs> they understood or misunderstood each other. I, I would love to learn about that. So I guess that's a teaser for something we'll have to talk about in the future. Thank you. Appreciate appreciate um, you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So everybody's for the invitation. Yeah, no problem. Everybody's been listening. Uh, go check out Chris's work. I will link to some of these books in the show notes so that you can just hit the direct link and go there and see it. 
Um, again, we appreciate all of you who are listening. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we will talk to you guys soon. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.